Welcome to episode 113 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's July 18th, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss another type of disaster that includes disease epidemics and is often linked to it. That's famine. Our guest today is Tyler Brand, who's an assistant professor in the Near and Middle Eastern Studies Department at Trinity College Dublin. He's the author of the new book, Famine Worlds, Life at the Edge of Suffering in Lebanon's Great War, which came out this year from Stanford University Press. Tyler is originally from Phoenix, Arizona, and he got his PhD from the American University in Beirut. He taught in the United Arab Emirates before moving to Ireland. He teaches more broadly on topics related to disaster studies, Lebanon, the Gulf, and the social and political history of the modern Middle East, among other things. Tyler has also worked and published on corruption, crisis, and children in World War I in the Middle East. And finally, he has a pretty lively blog called Historical Dregs, where he publishes on a wide range of topics, including Merle, one of your favorite side topics, which is the state of the academic job market. So thank you for coming on the podcast, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So today's episode, I think, gets us to one of the other, quote unquote, four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is famine. And as I just noted, is very often linked to disease. In the famous lists of bad stuff that happens and all the medieval things you and I read, Lee, famine and disease almost always come together along with war. Now, from an empirical perspective, this makes a lot of sense, right? When there's famine, people have less to eat, which makes them more prone to getting disease. And we'll talk about that today as well, since it's a topic that we, I think, danced around on our podcast, but not really gotten into. But Tyler's work also gets us to another angle about disasters or crises or whatever term you want to use in quotes, Lee, which is namely what happens if we understand these disasters from the perspective of those who live through them, and not just from a, for lack of a better term, a 2023 angle, right? How many people died what state structures changed or were resilient, and all those types of questions. Now, this is a point of view we have long been in favor of on this podcast, and you and I, Lee, have written quite a bit about this as well, and had a recent guest, Tina Sessa, who just came on and talked about something similar from the late antique field. But working in the early 20th century, Tyler has far more sources, so I'm excited to talk to him about how he does this. Yeah, this is also an opportunity for us to return to the Middle East, an area we've covered a few times in earlier episodes and focus this time on Lebanon, which we have not covered yet. But maybe to follow up on your point, Merle, I'm looking forward to examining a complex disaster in itself, right? The famine in Lebanon during World War I, and connect it to all these other disasters, whether diseases or locusts, as well as to the broader social context, the war, as well as the eventual collapse of the Ottoman Empire that controlled this area until the war. Now, oftentimes in our research, we prefer to try to narrow things down by focusing our analysis on a particular aspect of the disaster. But I hope to spend at least part of this episode looking at things from the ground level, which is the approach you mentioned, Merle, but also connect this to the broader context of Lebanese society at the time. But before we jump into the episode and the interview, what's going on with you, Merle? Are you still in Princeton living the good life in your former university? I am indeed still in Princeton for a few more weeks. I think we discovered, Lee, that you and I are going to miss each other in Princeton by like three days or something like that, probably. But it's been nice to be here, catch up with some people, get coffee, get drinks with people I haven't seen in a number of years. And also, I should say, get a lot of research and writing done. 
Now, in between this episode and the previous episode, I should say, Lee, I did go to Italy, just north of Milan for a workshop and then the UK for a conference. So I was gone for almost two weeks and it was a lot of fun getting to see people in Europe, many of whom I hadn't seen since before COVID in a lot of cases. And I obviously drank quite a lot of nice wine in Italy and quite a lot of, you know, nice English bitter in the UK. So I was pretty exhausted by the end. So you attended the big medieval conference at Leeds, right? Yeah, one of the two big medieval conferences that happened. And as I went to the other conference at Kalamazoo, how was Leeds this year? Was it as big as it used to be or was it smaller? How did the hybrid thing work out, if at all? So I don't know numbers before and after, but I was told it was somewhere around, I think, 2,600 people were there. So quite large. I can report that the accommodations where you usually stay on campus sold out much faster than they did before COVID. So for whatever that means. And they had a hybrid model, which actually worked pretty well. Everyone did a share screen or there was a camera in every room. And if you mess something up after about a minute or two, you'd basically get a voice like God coming down from the heavens was an IT person saying, you basically have messed up the sharing of the screen. Can you fix this please now? So it was well monitored, well done. I will say that, in fact, you know, when you were in a session, there were technical problems, obviously, to an extent in terms of sharing screen, but it was mostly resolved again from God on high. And the other thing, though, I noticed that most sessions, even if there was a hybrid model, the number of online people in any given session was under a handful. And maybe I saw about seven or eight, maybe nine is the most. Now, these things exist as recordings, so you can go back and watch the recordings, which I have mixed feelings on. Maybe we can talk about in our other podcast, Merle's thoughts on hybrid conferences. But all told, I think it went pretty well, and it seemed pretty well attended. So that seems like a success story. We're kind of like reviving the pre-COVID leads, more or less. Yeah, I think more or less. And what about you, Lee? I guess the semester has finally ended because, you know, a good German university ends in July. Yeah, we finished our semester almost three weeks ago. So my family and I are currently in the middle of packing our apartment after living here for three years. So that's obviously not a lot of fun, but uh, something that we have to do is because we're going to move to the United States in a couple of weeks from now. And other than that, the other big story that continues are large and frequent demonstrations that we have here in Israel that try to prevent the government from taking too much power by weakening the Supreme Court's ability to both check and balance its decisions. So that is what is going on here. Two quick questions, Lee. Number one, basically this new round of protests has not shown up really, for the most part, in U.S. papers on the front page. Do you notice this in Israel or? Do you not notice what our papers are reporting? Well, I guess it depends on who is noticing. So I have noticed that this round of protests garnered much less interest in American media than the previous round, which peaked, I'd say, somewhere around mid-March or so. I am not sure I can explain that very well because, I mean, the way people here speak and act is just like the previous speak. So it's not entirely clear. There was quite a lot of discussion about your president and my prime minister and what they will or will not do and how they will or will not speak or what they did or did not say. So all these things do draw attention here, but it's mostly at a relatively superficial discussion, I would say. So it's more of a symbolic gesture. 
Okay. And then my other quick question is, how do you feel about returning to the great state of New Jersey? Well, I guess next episode, maybe I'll be able to say some more about that. But at the moment, we're looking forward to that. We have a lot of uh, good memories from the great state of New Jersey, and we're going to see if time changed those memories or not. Well, I'll say this. One thing that has changed, because not much has changed, is there are more coffee and like little bakery places that are nicer now. So look forward to that. Around central New Jersey, or are you looking at like the very limited... Princeton University and the main, like two streets to either side. Yeah, the main streets of Princeton, New Jersey. I have not gone wandering in the rest <laughs> of New Jersey all that much. Yeah, fair enough. And what about you, Tyler? Where are you and how are you doing? So I am currently in Bettystown, Ireland, where my family lives. Dublin is kind of pricey, and so we kind of got pushed out here when we first moved over. So we're just enjoying the weird summer weather here. So we started off with an incredibly gray day, torrential downpours, and now it's sunny and beautiful, and the sun will set at about 11 o'clock at night tonight because we were very far north. Yeah, I have to say English weather, or I guess British Isles weather, one should say more broadly, has always been a strange thing. Going from Italy where it was 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and then I showed up in Leeds and it was 55, was deeply unpleasant. Yeah, as an Arizonan, it's pretty bizarre. Like, I think it's like 118 degrees right now in Arizona. I lived in the Emirates where it was 118 and 100% humidity. And here is a heat wave and it was 70 degrees. So I'm okay with it. I can handle that. And maybe before we move on to the interview itself, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the COVID experience, broadly speaking? I mean, is COVID still there at all? I mean, are people speaking about it? Have you heard cases of people getting COVID. My wife's boss actually got COVID a couple of days ago. And that seemed like super weird for us because it seemed to disappear like several months ago already. So is there anything like that in Ireland as well? It's hard to tell because we stopped covering it. Like we actually got it for the first time after a trip to Amsterdam a few months ago. And my wife and I got it. My son, we kept isolated in his bedroom, even though he was complaining constantly and trying to apparently infect himself by coming to see us all the time. But he's managed to avoid it so far. We've all been you know, multiple vaccinated. But in Ireland, you don't really talk about it much. And we had a pretty good experience. We locked down for a long time. They wouldn't let us more than five kilometers from our house. I live right next to the beach. So I can just like take my dog, walk her down to the beach, come back home and you know, jump into teaching or something. For me, it was a really good experience because you know, we had space. If you're in Dublin, in much more sort of cramped housing sort of facilities, it was a lot worse. So I know a lot of people got it multiple times. Some people suffered pretty terrible long COVID sort of effects and things like that. So I feel very lucky about our own experience with it. In Ireland, for the most part, I felt better about being here than I would have been in, like, say, America. Lee has many thoughts on America and COVID, but we can save that for our third <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but let's now turn to the discussion. And as we always do, maybe we'll start off super broad, just so you can give our listeners a lay of the land. So. Maybe the broad political outlines to start with of World War One, what's happening in the Middle East, who's around, who's fighting, all that kind of quote unquote fun stuff. I guess a very basic sense. I mean, you have this sort of kind of Ottoman sort of Near Eastern Mushrik area. So you have Turkey, you know, the areas of like greater Syria, um, the Ottomans control down to like, say, through Iraq and down the Hejaz region. Key figure here, though, is you have a number of other sort of imperial presences in the region. You know, Iran is on the other side of this, but they've been pretty much dominated by the Russians and the British, you know, in prior to the war, more directly by the Russians. 
Egypt is occupied by the British, which makes it essentially during the war a sort of direct point of contact between the Ottomans and the Entente. Go a little bit further, the Libyans are controlled by the Italians, who are no, not really a factor at this point. Um, and you have North Africa controlled by France. And this is actually important for the Ottomans and also for Europe, I suppose, because the French also pulled lots of colonial troops out of these areas. And so, in a sense, you didn't have a lot of direct fighting compared to, like, say, the Western Front in Europe or the Eastern Front. You had a couple of Ottoman fronts in, like, say, Gallipoli. You had one in the Caucasus. You had one in Iraq. And then you had one in Gaza. So for many of the people that I actually know talk about in my book, it's kind of like a World War I book without much war, because you know, the only time you really have any actual combat is really in 1918, and it's pretty fleeting. That's kind of the sort of political outlines of the situation. And I guess boiling it down a little bit further, within the Ottoman Empire, you have you know, some variations, a somewhat decentralized sort of system. You have Ottoman governors in place, but you have a lot of local intermediaries who actually have a lot of sort of influence in situations. And Mount Lebanon, which is going to be a very key part of this, was a semi-autonomous region. You had an Ottoman lieutenant governor, but up until World War I, it was someone who was appointed in conjunction with European powers because of a civil war in Lebanon that took place in 1860. So it was Ottoman, but it was also kind of had a lot of European influence there. So kind of a complicated situation. Then I guess the natural follow-up to set the scene a little further is what's happening in Lebanon itself, right? People aren't fighting great fights, right? Lawrence of Arabia is not running around. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So essentially, the war begins, for the most part, you know, the first sort of context that anyone in the area has is through the Ottoman conscription campaign. So they call this the Suffer Barlik, which is sort of kind of mobilization conscription. So if you were a man who was of fighting age, you had a good chance of being called off on the Ottoman military. And the Ottomans had actually demobilized their army very recently prior to this. Now, the Ottomans have essentially been fighting since 1911. And so a lot of the material that they'd had was exhausted. The Ottoman sort of treasury had been largely exhausted at this point as well, too. So many people in the region didn't really feel like they wanted to commit themselves to a new sort of conflict like this. I um, mean, lots of desertions taking place initially. And you know, as the war went on, of course, you know, many more. You had eventually about 2.8 million people pulled up for the war. Majority of them, though, came from Anatolia. But as the situation kind of progressed in Lebanon, you do have the war spilling over into it. Um, the Ottomans began locking down with more of a sort of kind of direct authoritarian rule. Ahmed Jamal Pasha is one of the great villains of the war. He came in, was put into place as a governor across you know, all of Syria and also in charge of the Ottoman military there to confront the British down in Gaza. One of his goals was to try to suppress fifth columnists in the region, whether imaginary or real. And so he is really sort of kind of heavy-handed and brutal. And a lot of the policies he put into place involved you know, heavy suppression tactics, some execution of dissidents, and things like that. On top of this, too, the Entente, as a way of trying to kind of pressure the local inhabitants into you know, rising up against the Ottomans, put a blockade into place. And this wound up becoming very sort of important when it comes to the development of the famine situation. So essentially through 1914, as the war is kind of developing in Lebanon, again, you don't have a lot of war, but you have a lot of things being contributed to the war effort. And it begins to put a lot of pressure on the populations around this time. Yeah, so I guess the follow-up question here would be, how do we get from 1914 and this like accumulating pressure, right, to the big crisis that leads to the famine later on during the war? Yeah, and I guess the interesting question here is, you know, it's a question of causality. And this is one of those things that famine historians about World War I have been kind of batting about for the last few years. And I tend to break it down just to being the war. Without the war, you would not have had the famine. 
But you also got to say that the famine itself happened at a time when so many terrible and almost like inconceivably kind of bad luck situations took place one after the other that it's almost improbable that they all could have happened at once. So if we were to list them all, you have essentially the Entente blockade you know, coming in, and this you know, restricts the sort of importation of food into the region, but it also restricts the amount of, like, say, trade that takes place. And you're talking about areas that are very internationalized in their trade. You know, Beirut and Mount Lebanon made most of their money by either sending goods to Europe, like, say, Mount Lebanon's silk industry, or bringing goods in from Europe, like Beirut, for instance. So with the blockade in place, you essentially don't have an economy. Without an economy, you don't have jobs. Without jobs, of course, you can't afford to buy things to eat. And a lot of the major problems actually initially happened just because people needed work. You know, people started flowing from the mountains into the cities around early 1915, actually, you know, looking for some sort of work at a time actually when many people in the cities like Beirut and Tripoli were already put out of work because the ports had shut down. So it's a very sort of complicated situation in the region as a result of these sort of kind of reverberations. In April of 1915, you have a swarm of locusts kind of swinging up the coastline. They devoured you know, hundreds of millions of lira worth of goods. Um, it reduced the output of certain parts of Syria by up to 60%. In the end, I mean, this you know, created a massive shock to the system. So at a time when the military is essentially sequestering as much of the produce as possible for the army, because the Ottomans want to end the war as quickly as possible. They assumed the war would be over you know, quickly. They wanted to keep the army provisioned. So they prioritized that over the you know, success of the population. So essentially, this is where you begin having pressures added to the system. You can't relieve this because the blockade is in place. And you wind up having this situation get worse and worse as prices begin to rise over the winter. You begin really having starvation kicking in in early 1916, um, from what we can tell. And at that point, we have starvation in the streets, some social breakdowns taking place. You no know, disease begins spreading much more rapidly. We have a typhus epidemic, which we'll definitely hit later on in this, I'm sure. The famine goes from being a social crisis to being a deadly sort of kind of lived calamity. And this is 1916. The famine goes on essentially until the end of the war in November of 1918. So you have two additional years after this where things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so all these things kind of catalyze social situations. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, I think it's going to be different in different parts of the country, too. So there wasn't like one big famine. It was like several different sort of experiences that just happened to overlap in ways that you know, kind of were based in this same famine context within the region. So it's a complicated thing, but I guess as close as one can get to boiling it down in a reasonable amount of time. No, no, thanks. That was really well done. And I guess then this brings up a question. I had never heard of this famine before reading this book, but then again, I'm not a specialist on early 20th century Middle East. But it sounds like people have obviously long known about this, written about it. So what kind of perspectives they usually have? Is it, you know, this causal, you know, what drove what kind of thing? I mean, how do people usually think about this famine? So the famine is kind of like the war situation. Like we often think about it as being sort of a hinge event. So it's, you no, know, you have the Ottoman era and you have the mandate era that comes after that. And the war is just this kind of like phase that was really awful and people had to live through it and there was lots of deaths. And so when you have it narrated, it's either from one of two perspectives. You generally have either the sort of nationalist perspective you think like George Antonius talking about sort of Arab awakening, you know, Philip Hitty began writing about this, and they might focus on the famine as this like uniquely terrible event wherein many, many people died. And they'll be very vague about that, often speculating in very large numbers. And it'll give kind of a sort of standard narrative. Like you have your basics that you're going to get from the famine. You're going to get Jamal Pasha, you're going to get the locusts, you're going to get starvation. You might get mentioned of the plague and cannibalism or something else that's really awful. But the main sort of like focus that comes out of this is that, you no. Know, the war happened, the Ottomans are no longer there, and the French are there. 
so the nationalist narrative tends to come out of this because the nation comes out of this. And so for them, you know, the important thing really is the creation of the nation from this traumatic experience. The interesting thing, though, is that in the 1930s, the idea of the famine really wasn't something that kind of became politically popular. It's just kind of weird when you think about, like, say, societies where in famine is kind of a big deal. Think about, like, Ireland or India. Like, the Irish sort of national narrative, in part, goes back to this idea of kind of, you know, the famine and the persecution by the British. And same thing with the British and the multiple famines they caused in India. In the case of, you know, Lebanon, they kind of forgot about it. And there's a few reasons for this, probably. Some political... People who probably were very largely in charge of the country at the time and probably contributed a lot to the famine wound up being in charge of the country in the 20s and 30s. And they, of course, didn't want you to remember that. But you also have a sort of secondary perspective, too, in the sense that the worst of the famine hit Mount Lebanon and the majority population of Mount Lebanon were Maronite Catholics. So for the Maronites, this was their tragedy. So this was, for many of them, an attempt by the Ottomans to eradicate their people because they had been politically very sort of problematic in the years that had come before this. So when they narrate the famine, in many cases, this is kind of a passion play. In fact, there is actually a book called The Passions of the Christian in Lebanon. I won't comment on that one right now, but it's uh, no very sort of kind of like an overwhelming sort of thing to read these sorts of things because they often focus on the most terrible aspects of the famine. You no, know, it's about the suffering. It's about the starvation. It's about the sort of kind of the mutilation of not only the individual, but also of society and the fact that they had to drag themselves out of this to create their own nation. And it's, again, a national creation story. But it's a different one, so it's not a sort of unifying one. Because the Maronite Patriarch, when he came to the Paris Peace Conference, used the famine as justification for a greater Lebanon, including many areas that had wanted to be part of a greater Syria. So for many people, this was kind of politically tainting the famine. So it's not something that would unify the people, but for the Maronites, this was their own sort of personal crisis. And so they feel very strongly connected to it, even today, actually. So these are two different groups of people, I guess, within Lebanon, right? One uh, religious sect, another nationalists. But what about non-Lebanese? When have non-Lebanese started to pay attention to this famine and write about it? Curiously enough, actually, during the famine. So Lebanon you know, had an American presence there going back to you know the early 19th century. Eli Smith went there and kind of wound up in Beirut on his trip down to the Holy Land. And Beirut is a really pretty place, and they just wound up finding that to be a really good place to set up what they wanted to be missions across the mountain. And of course, you already had you no know, French missionaries and you no know, Italian missionaries setting up institutions there too. But the Americans really had a strong presence. Now, the Syrian Protestant College, which later became the American University of Beirut, was in place there and has actually a relatively sort of kind of august and respected institution. In fact, during the war, it was actually given permission to remain open by the Ottoman authorities themselves. And they committed lots and lots of time and effort to relief efforts. Many of them were actually born in the country or considered themselves very closely attached to it, even though they were Americans. So it had a very sort of interesting sort of connection. And many of the Americans who were actually there in the country at the time you know, were actively involved in relief work. And a number of them, including Margaret McGilvery, who was the secretary of the American Mission Press, George Doolittle, who was a you know, pastor and had worked down in Sidon, now, he was actually out there working. And these people actually then began writing about it afterwards in case of McGillivray actually to begin raising funds for the relief efforts. But I mean, in more recent years, this is something that around the centennial of the war, it became something. Up until that point, it was largely neglected. You had a couple people, Nicholas Jai had written a dissertation about it. Elizabeth Thompson had done something about it in Colonial Citizens, but it wasn't really something it was considered a big topic. It was kind of like more sort of the Lebanese collective memory rather than something that was really kind of popular. You, know, you get the centennial and suddenly this begins to boom and you have you know, plenty of people actually writing about it now. 
video and famine specialists don't know a lot about this. So I've had a number of different conversations with them at conferences and you know, the Lebanese famine is, you know, they have no concept about that. They know the Finnish famine or the Icelandic famine, but the Lebanon, which was objectively deadlier, you know, they don't really know about. So you mentioned, you know, there was no typical famine experience, right? That it was different in different places, but maybe you could give us to start with kind of some broad buckets for lack of a better term, right? I mean, what key structural factors would shape its impact? I think you already mentioned if you were kind of not in the city, right? You were coming down into the city, but what other things were happening here? There's so many different aspects of this that kind of intersect in one's experience. So you can think about it like things we don't even really think about often, like geography. So for instance, Mount Lebanon, as I mentioned before, tended to have it really badly. There's a couple of reasons for this. No, its industry was mainly the silk industry and we shut down the ports, then the silk industry shuts down. But Lebanon also depended on its you know, remittances for its economy, like today, actually. So 41% of its GDP was based on remittances coming from America, Brazil, Argentina, and places like that. And so, again, when you shut down the country, the Ottoman Empire actually shut down bank transfers because they didn't want the British and French who controlled the Ottoman bank to just essentially call in their debt and bankrupt the treasury. So suddenly now people who depended upon this because like maybe the husband's off, this suddenly leaves many of them without any sort of support. So the mountain has very unique sort of situations that they have to deal with, you know, unemployment, poverty, and things like that. In the countryside where you have most of the conscription being done, the areas kind of agrarian areas around the mountain, strangely enough, actually you have too few people working. So the mountain Lebanon, you have too many workers and nothing to do. In these countryside regions, you have you know, not enough people to harvest the crops. And so this creates another crisis. Um, debt crisis begins to pile up for these farmers, and many people you know, essentially you know, lose their farms to debt at a time when being kicked out of your home is almost a death sentence. So moving to the cities, you have you know, situations where, you know, again, like in the mountain, many people are kind of put out of work, but also you have a flow of people coming in from the mountainside into places like Beirut and Tripoli along the coast or in Zahle in the sort of Bekaa Valley. And with this, you have crowding, you know, again, lots of unemployment, but then also it's a very sort of good sort of environment for diseases to spawn. So this is one of those things. Other aspects of identity are also very important too, which we can get into in a moment. What about fishing? Do people move into fishing? Does fishing help relieve some of the famine? Is this something that's being spoken of at all? That's actually a really interesting question. And you would think that during a famine where you need to get as much food as possible, that fishing would be an important sort of source of protein. So the Ottoman Empire were absolutely terrified that the Entente were going to be, you know, say, using like communications with people on the coastlines to gain some sort of like information from spies. And they did. They had spies embedded all over the place. They literally knew where Jamal Pasha was at any time. There's a number of different hilarious stories about Jamal Pasha, you know, showing up at a window to go and show some of his guests the beautiful view and he pops it open and there's an Entente warship looking directly at him because they knew exactly where he was going to be and which window he was going to open. But also, you know, this means that they began pushing back against this. And because they were afraid of espionage, they actually made it illegal to go and do things like, say, panning for salt, which was a very necessary part of you no know, local food culture. You need salt to live, essentially. And so a number of women were actually arrested in the northern part of Lebanon because they weren't supposed to be on the coastline. Swimming, unless you were a child who could kind of get away with it, was also illegal. So fishing was actually difficult. And Leila Fawaz wrote a really wonderful book about this, too. And one of the things she starts off with actually was this one fisherman who was out there and kind of defiantly doing so. He wasn't supposed to be doing it. And he did it essentially because this was something that he had to do for himself to kind of like reject the sort of suffering around him. But yeah, it was a very difficult thing because you couldn't necessarily do things that one would think is being natural. That kind of begs the question, 
presumably the Ottoman authorities knew that famine was happening. If they're able to, quote unquote, prevent people from fishing or salt panning or whatever, did they care at all? Or was it a purely like, as long as our soldiers are supplied, we don't really care what else happens? So the general accusation against the Ottomans is that they didn't care or that they did it intentionally. And to some extent, no, Ottoman policies made things worse because what they tried to do was to do things on a structural level. They wanted to ensure that they were the ones who were seen as being like protectors of society. For instance, so Azmi Bey was the governor of Beirut. When he came to power in 1915, he banned any relief efforts taking place in the city. And he did this because he didn't want the Americans stealing his thunder. And Azmi didn't necessarily want to have soup kitchens out there because then it looks like the city is in crisis. So the government had, say, bread distribution networks that were set up. They set up you no know, food cartels that would allow like certain individuals to bring food in from, like, say, Syria. Um, Matt Lebanon did this as well. They fixed prices. The Ottoman lira was kind of vacillating wildly at this time, which was actually a really major problem when it came to actually purchasing food at reasonable prices. And the Ottoman attempts to deal with this thing, they didn't necessarily want it to be, say, direct distributions. One, it was expensive. So if they're going to do this, they generally would say give money to organizations that already had infrastructure in place, the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, church institutions, you know, like Muslim charitable organizations and things like that. So the Ottomans essentially tried to stick in the background, but this, of course, looks terrible. And if you're already being seen as being kind of a callous and sort of brutal individual like Jamal Pasha was, this didn't really do them any favors. Now, this really famous story that's occasionally attributed to Jamal Pasha, sometimes to Asmi Bey, about him going to the countryside. And a village stops and they say, like, you need to help us. There's a famine going on in the country. And so Jamal steps back and says, no, has a mother eaten her child? And the village is like, what the fuck? Like, no, a mother hasn't eaten her child. And so he kind of like sits back and says, there's no famine until a mother's eaten her child. And kind of implying that, no, end of the question and that's it. And it's been attributed to different locations and different villages, to different you know Ottoman individuals. And so you kind of assume that it probably didn't happen, or at least it's some sort of kind of like, there's a moral to the story being attached to this. But you read anything about this, especially as you get to 1917 and 1918, and the Ottomans did not come out well in this. They did do things, but they did not handle it as they probably should have. So it sounds that... The Ottomans were not popular in whatever imaginary Paul we would like hand out at the time. But what are the implications of this on popularity? Is our populations resisting more actively than just spying for the Entente? Or are they kind of tolerating the essentially heavy hand by the Ottomans? And there wasn't much that they could do. I mean, when you think about it, you might be like, say, have a desire to resist. And Mount Lebanon, of course, had many, many, many arms. Now, this is an area that's had several civil wars. They didn't really disarm you know, the communities there. You didn't really have a sort of organizational sort of capacity there. It was difficult for people even to kind of keep themselves going during this famine. And so this seems to have kind of muted any sort of response. And the Entente wanted them to rise up against them. That's one of the reasons why the blockade was in place. In fact, there are actually proceedings of parliament where this was brought up. And in Britain, they said, well, no, this is like, we're trying to get the Ottomans out of this. So the famine is in place. We're not going to lift it because of a humanitarian situation. The humanitarian situation is the goal. But you no, know, if you don't have any sort of kind of nucleus to start this, it wasn't really going to happen. You do have risings against the Ottomans in 1918 when they're in retreat, essentially. And in part, this is because many deserters would come through villages and like either rob them or beg from them. And so you did have like lashing out by certain communities, but it wasn't really, you think it was a possibility. And if anyone had any sort of kind of 
inclinations to resist. You know, Jamal Pasha in particular was very good about putting a stamp on that. You know, there's a very famous case where the French, when they left their embassy, they had created a false wall and they left a list of potential collaborators in there, which was fantastic work on their part. And of course, you no know, one of the people who worked in the embassy knew about this. And so he you know, called the attention to the Ottoman authorities. They went in there, knocked down the wall, found the list. And anyone who remained in the Ottoman Empire at the time was condemned to death taken in and you have a series of martyrs set up in the martyr square in Beirut and you no know, Damascus, those were the martyrs. So there was a lot of reason not to resist. Now the Ottoman authorities were powerful and people really weren't. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity to really rise up against that, unfortunately. And maybe a follow-up question. Were there people who tried to resolve the famine situation by actually joining the Ottomans, that is to say the army? Or was the army even worse? Like military service was even worse than starving. It was pretty bad. For instance, one of the issues you know, that kind of comes up is the idea that the Ottomans had blockaded Mount Lebanon to prevent food from getting in. And this is technically kind of true. Now, the Ottomans didn't want smuggling to go into Mount Lebanon because they didn't really have as much control there. And Mount Lebanon is a very mountainous region. You want to smuggle stuff, you can get stuff into the mountain. Um, so they set up checkpoints along the outskirts of the mountain. And if you brought things in... And like, say you brought a cow that is a certain size, or you brought in like, say, food that you didn't have a permission slip to bring in, they could just confiscate it outright. And so what often happened is that soldiers were not really being paid their normal nominal wages. And the Ottoman lira is collapsing in 1916, 1917, 1918. I mean, it loses half its value in 1916 alone. By 1918, it's like worth like 18% of its nominal value. And if they're being paid in paper lira, it's worthless, essentially. It's very difficult to buy things. The Ottomans don't really have enough food to be providing for their soldiers. So soldiers would kind of just, you know, take stuff to make up for it. So you have lots of corruption, you have lots of, you know, sort of problems that this caused. So the Ottoman soldiers did what they could, but it really was not a great thing to be in the Ottoman military. I mean, of all the people conscripted into the Ottoman military, they had about 2.8 million during the war. I think something like 778,000 people wound up not coming home. So it was a pretty rough place to be, I would say. Like, I don't think people would volunteer to go into the army. Probably people volunteering to like flee the army and form, like, say, bands of brigands was far more likely, actually. So some of our listeners might now be thinking to themselves, okay, we've spoken for, you know, a good amount of time, but what was the actual, quote-unquote, impact of this, right? How many people died? And is this a typical thing that you have, you know, you mentioned famine specialists, they go around and they kind of count up whatever the probably not very good statistics that are out there and arrive at some number? Yeah, this is, I mean, the complete shot in the dark for the most part. And it makes sense. I mean, like, I think about when you're living through COVID, you know, like trying to understand how many people were infected when you don't really have ways to measure all of this, especially later on when you don't have like, say, active sort of monitoring techniques. So this is a time when, for the most part, people didn't even know who was in the country. Now, the Ottoman Empire had on its census, 414,800 people living in Lebanon at the time. During the war, there was a sort of kind of like general compendium of Lebanese knowledge. And they actually came out and said, well, yeah, but like so many people migrated, there's basically only 350,000 people here. So there wasn't a lot of knowledge about who was there. Um, we do know that many, many people died. It was one of the more horrifying experiences that one can imagine. And then we get this both in the sense that you, know, you have reports of widespread death. In many cases, numbers that were wildly exaggerated ranged basically from 100,000 people in Mount Lebanon to 250,000 people. It was like 28% to about 57% of the population, which is horrific. And it's not possible, but you know, it kind of reflects the sort of horrors that people had. You know, literally, you get up, you leave the house, and if you're not yourself starving, you have to walk past you know, dozens of people lying there in the street, just you know, 
starving, crying out and begging for you. And plagues are terrible. Disasters like earthquakes are terrible. Famine, when people describe it, seems to have this sort of kind of superlative status when it comes to the worst sorts of things that happen to humanity. This was a three and a half year long famine. And it was grueling. Reading things written in 1914, 1915, and then reading things written in 1918, you get this great sense of intense weight that people had to deal with. They changed their attitudes towards things because of the suffering around them. They become callous towards the poverty in the streets around them. People in their eyes begin degrading and just like, you know, in certain cases, they use very bestial sort of terminology. You know, it's a very sort of like horrific sort of thing for people to have to endure. Sometimes when I was reading some of the sources when I was in the archive, I would actually have to put down the source and walk away from it for about a week because it was really difficult to even comprehend that sort of thing. There's one story that you know, the young girl's mother has to go away to try to find some work and her father is gone. So she leaves her and her two you know, brothers. She's eight years old at the time with a half loaf of bread for however long she's going to be gone. And she has to portion this out to her two younger brothers. So her mother comes back after several days, one of these times that she's gone, and she asks, no, where's your brother? And she's answered one word, he's dead. And that was it. The mother kind of accepted that. And this is an eight-year-old girl who has to kind of process this, take care of her brothers, and also take on the sense that she may be responsible for this. Descriptions are truly appalling. So it's one of the things you can almost like, you can't even comprehend it. And oftentimes the writers, when they talk about it, say, no, literally this is an indescribable situation. Of course, they then try to describe it in like 10,000 words, all horrifically terrible and hyperbolic and things like that. But it really was unbelievable. So what kind of sources do you use, right? So you mentioned archives. What are these letters or these news articles? Yeah, there's a range of things. And the tough thing is that the majority of things that are written about this, of course, are coming from people who are wealthy. Of course, people who are educated have the privilege of doing this. You have a number of people maybe who kind of had suffered within the famine. They write about it in many cases as their experience as children. But most of the people are writing about it are kind of doing this on the sort of edges of the famine. They're seeing things and trying to kind of like reflect upon it. So you have memoirs from this, a number of college professors, a number of kind of local shakily leaders across the country. Religious authorities, you know, Anton Yamin was one of the more famous ones of these. You know, Sliman Dahir was writing about this in Nabati in the sort of southern part of what's now southern Lebanon. You have a lot of foreign individuals too. So a number of people working at the institutions, like say Syrian Protestant College, the American Mission in particular was actually a really fantastic source because many of these things that they would write would be letters back and forth between missionaries. And so they're very candid about things. Like if you're writing a memoir, oftentimes you're very aware of the potential audience. And you don't want to sound like a jerk in your memoir, basically. So you kind of like see them like kind of putting themselves forward in certain sorts of ways. And then you begin reading the sources and people were very raw in certain cases about how they've described things. Diaries were by far the most interesting because you know, sometimes they'd be writing things that you would never say to anyone else. And yet, you know, here they are admitting the sort of horrors they're going through and even like the depression that they had to deal with. You know, one man is describing you know, Edward Nicoley who was you know, a professor at the Syrian Protestant College, was sitting out, you know, looking out at the beautiful Mediterranean from his colleague's house. His colleague was up working in the mountains you know, doing relief work, so Jay Nicoli is probably feeling even worse about that. He said, no, these are the days when I can't even enjoy things without kind of in the back of my mind imagining the suffering of the people all around me. It kind of brings everything else in his life down. So you have a lot of things like this. You have a few governmental sources as well. There's a sort of kind of 
a Salname where they'd gone and then like a sort of coverage of the Beirut region. Met Lebanon had, again, I can mention this earlier, this kind of big information book published in 1918, and that provides some information about the first couple of years of the war. You no know, scrapping bits and pieces. You don't have a lot of journalistic sources because there's so much censorship during the war. If you use journalism from like America or Egypt, then you're not getting direct information. And there's a lot of propaganda and or hearsay going on there too. So a lot of this really is going through trying to kind of dig through the sources, find the good stuff, and also kind of be very critical about that because in certain cases, you have to kind of doubt what is being observed there. So why did you decide to, I guess, do an approach in that kind of way, like a more granular story about people's experience rather than, you know, as I said in my opening remarks, kind of a top down, you know, here's how things changed. Or as you explained, you know, you have a nationalist narrative for other narratives as well. So in part, it was, I kind of felt it was something that needed to be told. I wanted to start off doing environmental history. That was my goal to be an environmental historian. And that didn't work out, but that was fine, I guess. So as I began looking through these sources, I began kind of feeling sort of kind of very personal aspect of life in crisis. And at the time I was at the American University of Beirut and the Syrian you know, civil war had just been kicking off when I was starting to really get into a lot of these sources. And one of the most acute things that you would notice in Beirut was the fact that you had so many sort of kind of people being forced into the streets and you had things coming in waves and you no, know, kind of seeing my own reaction to these really traumatic things on the streets, you know, seeing like, say my son had just been born recently. And so like, I'd see like a child who's three years old standing in the street corner, you didn't place there obviously by some people and you no know, kind of like tugging on your shirt and asking you for money, you know, seeing a mother and a child on the street corner or a mother and you know, a child that had been given to her on the street corner, you know, talking to people who had had to abandon their lives in Syria, that essentially had no idea about if they could go back. You know, there's a nine-year-old boy who is shoe shining to send money back to his family in Dera. These sorts of things, you don't think about the Syrian civil war, you don't think about those people sometimes. And I started thinking, I mean, well, these people have to be there in my sources too. I mean, their lives were important too. This is like the lived aspect of, of the famine. And we know the sort of broad outlines of the famine. You know, we know how horrific it was. But you know, like, what about those people there too? Kind of like inspired me to try to go and look for something like that. And it's tough because that's not really the thing that people write about. And people like me were not also very keen on writing about their own sort of experiences either. And so that was something that became kind of a, a target as well. You know, what about the people who are living through the famine, but not really in the famine on the adjacent sort of kind of outskirts? That's still their famine. You know, they live in it as much as anyone else and they're affected in it in different ways. But, you know, that's part of the broader famine experience. So um, I started thinking about it as more of a sort of a context rather than an event in and of itself. And that kind of opened up a lot of vistas for looking for I guess, the types of experiences that I found. So this raises a different question, I guess, Tyler. Two questions. One is, what exactly was the foreigner experience of famine? Were foreigners one of these groups that were just like looking at all this from the side and being relatively food secure? Or were there foreigners who also experienced famine? So that's like one part of the question. And the other part is it possible, right, to break down the famine experience based on religious sect in Lebanon or maybe class or gender? Do these things yeah. even make sense? Very much so, actually. I mean, in the foreigners, I do just have to say, for the most part, they tended to be relatively well insulated from this. If you're an American you know, working at, like, say, the mission, you're connected with the Presbyterians and you're talking about, like, Rockefeller and Dodge and stuff like that. You know, like, big names, lots and lots of money. And so... 
the American missions name itself allowed them to raise as much cash as they wanted in the country. Plus, they were smuggling stuff in to then distribute to people in the country, too. The ingenious smuggling campaign. If you want to look into this, actually, Christine Lindner has written an absolutely amazing article on this. But for the most part, you're not talking about people who are starving in the streets. You're talking about people who like, no, they burn chickpeas, grind them up and use that to make fake coffee that so they can still have like nice little teas with people. Instead of like, say, using white sugar, they will use like, say, carob molasses or something. I mean, you still have people getting sick and dying. You have typhus, you have no tuberculosis, which killed the Syrian president college president, Howard Bliss, after the war, actually. So you do have some sort of kind of like spillover a little bit, but it's not nearly as bad as like, say, no people, they had recourse for the most part, and their institutions and their identity protected them. And identity is a big thing here. I mean, you brought up the issue of class. No, if you were poor, you are far more vulnerable to the effects of famine. You don't have money to protect you. In many cases, you also don't have name. And no, one's status and one's name really does mean a lot. If you're from a good family, this means you have certain connections. If you don't, then you're kind of dependent upon your community. And when that fails because of intense poverty, then this becomes a very difficult thing to kind of keep up. So sect for the most part itself and we have this sort of insinuation that the maronites were a targeted class but that's just because i think they were the majority population in mount lebanon and there was definitely enmity between jamal pasha and the ottoman authorities and the maronite church and i do imagine that many of the people who are actually kind of manning the checkpoints might feel a sense of kind of distaste for the maronite populations and essentially would punish them but it wasn't like a policy thing um, you did have certain advantages if you were Druze, for instance, living in, like, say, the Shuf region, because a large population of them lived in Haran region, where they grew lots and lots of grain and could you know, essentially sell it to people who can then smuggle it back into their communities. And this was a major way that people kept themselves alive in those areas. Another interesting thing, we tend to not also think about, like, say, the Shia population of Mount Lebanon, or Lebanon generally at this point, but they tend to be the ones that were more chosen for conscription. They had far fewer protections, and the Ottoman authorities seemed to be more, I guess, willing to use them, despite the sort of kind of effects this had in the community. There's the city of Tyre, for instance, in the areas around that. In the aftermath of the first two years, the ratio of women to men was 3.5 to 1 because of conscription. You can imagine the sort of social impacts that that has had. The gender was another big one, really, because, I mean, if you are a woman, the options of working were very limited this time. Your son, who might be like 12 years old, could make four times what you can make working in this, like you say, an agricultural labor. The Lebanese silk factories were shut down, and it was a very sort of kind of like female kind of labor institution at the time. So there weren't a lot of sort of options to keep yourself alive. So you kind of throw yourself on charity or your family, which puts you really at a great risk if that doesn't really work. So certain people were more vulnerable based upon who they were, essentially. And there are a lot of different sort of kind of layers of texture to that, I guess. You've mentioned it a few times, and I think we'd be remiss as we get toward the end of this discussion if we didn't at least discuss disease, since that's, in theory, the name of the podcast. You've mentioned typhus, you've mentioned tuberculosis, right? Are there big epidemics, or is this one of those things where, you know, you have more crowding of people, so tuberculosis is just going to be more prevalent, and probably same thing I would imagine with typhus for the same reason? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because typhus was never really a problem before the war. In fact, some people believed it wasn't there. This is actually false. In fact, there was a survey done in Beirut in 1898, and Benoit Boyer, who was a French doctor working in Beirut, had you know, found a number of typhus cases, and he died of typhus. So we do know just from his own experience that typhus was there, at least for him. But in the first couple of years, you do have this sort of influx of typhus from Ottoman troops coming down from the Balkans. And there's insinuations that it was a massive die-off. So Antoine Yamin, who's one of the sort of early writers about this said that 70,000 people died of it in this initial wave, which is numerically improbable that that could have actually happened. 
But we do have a sort of sense about you know, how deadly it was. You now, looking at the sort of second wave of this, which seemed to have been much less deadly than the initial wave. In 1917, you had about 2,500 recorded cases in Mount Lebanon, of which 19.3% of those were fatal. So it was a pretty disastrous sort of thing. Tuberculosis was spread, as you mentioned, by the close proximity, but malaria really was something we don't tend to think about. It was endemic because in the Eastern Mediterranean, so of course it's everywhere. But the things that might have protected people in the past, like say being in Mount Lebanon, where you don't have the false aparum variety, which is the more deadly one. And so you have people flowing out of Mount Lebanon, but don't have this prior exposure to that particular strain of malaria, now suddenly getting exposed to it. So combined with that and the sort of impacts of malaria, which include anemia, gastrointestinal issues, now people are going to become far more susceptible to the effects of starvation and malaria if you combine the two together. So there's synergistic effect, probably made malaria sneakily the most deadly thing that people actually had to face during the famine. And this is on top of things like dysentery, which were the dysentery cholera, which killed massive you know, percentages of the people who had them, but it wasn't tons of registered numbers, at least. So as we move towards the end of this interview, a couple of methodological questions. So one is that I think that we as historians, we tend to compress these longer term events, right? These long events such as the famine that lasted for several years. We tend to focus it on a single experience or a single, let's say, recurrence of the event, right? Of the famine in this case. How can we get around this, right? How can we keep the broader story, keep change over time on one side, but also keep the nuance in the story? And as you acknowledged earlier, right? Acknowledge that some places did suffer more and some places did suffer less. And again, so how do we tie all this together? What was your experience? A good example I've been using lately is that you no. Know, like it's mid-2023. So the famine lasted three and a half years. So what were you doing back in January 2020? And who were you back then? And who are you now? Because that's essentially the amount of time that the famine lasted. You're talking artificially kind of like pinned down about 1,521 days of living through famine. That's a long freaking time. Like people could live a significant chunk of their lives in that. You no, know, And your world has changed completely. And so kind of trying to think about that as being something to have to take into account is something that I think is a good thing to focus on. Thinking about the events of the famine is something that you know, has explanatory power. You no, know, It has certain causal things. Things happened before, things happened after it. So you can look at it in the sort of broad macro sense, but then you also can look at it in the sort of kind of narrower sense. And for me, I mean, I had to kind of upfront all the sort of initial context. Here's what happened. And after that, you can kind of break it down into themes. And I don't want to say that's a good way of doing things. And I actually don't want to say you should ever write about famine, especially as your first project, because it is grueling. And like I restructured that one probably about 15 times before we kind of came down to the final sort of idea about how actually to do it. But it's something I think just to kind of keep in mind is that it's not a static event. You're not just kind of the same person all the way through. I mean, and this is thinking about an individual level. Society isn't the same. It fluctuates. You know, even something like, say, buying grain is going to be more expensive at certain times of the year than others. And this is like, say, during the course of the famine. You no, know, there's a lot of variation there. And you have to kind of like acknowledge the fact at least it's there. And I think that that in itself may help. But, you know, in some events are more conducive to that than others, of course. So if I can ask one last question that builds on Lee's question and your response, which is how would you suggest someone? use your methodologies in another time and place, right? What are the limits and possibilities? You know, there's obviously limits for sources that I have versus what you have, but how much you suggest someone go about doing this? 
Yeah. Now, usually talking as a Middle Eastern historian, I'm not usually the person who has like all the sources. So it's actually nice to talk to, to people coming from you know, areas where actually accessing these sort of kind of intimate ideas is so difficult. But it is difficult. You know, sometimes they're just not there. I left off massive chunks of my analysis because I didn't have enough really to kind of fill them out. And a lot of it, I think, is kind of being able to draw bits and pieces together, you know, make that sort of analytical sort of kind of points that kind of show where these sorts of things are leading. And because it's such a complicated thing, I mean, I think that it's very easy to overgeneralize. So I think that if the sources are there, it's something that's possible. And I think even if you talk about something like, say, the Black Death, you know, people have done pretty excellent work doing something like this on something like the Black Death, even though it was at a time when you know, we normally wouldn't associate having lots and lots of sources or something like that. I think also it's kind of the way that one approaches the sources can tell us a lot about things. So if it's a retrospective source, the way that it approaches the topic is often going to be a particular sort of way as compared to someone writing about an event that's taking place right now. And so this sort of thing gives, I think, different opportunities when you're writing. And also, I think that just like having that sort of critical approach to your sources you know, opens you up to kind of like questioning exactly what the source is trying to tell you. you know, how are they writing this and why are they writing it that way? This is actually reflect reality or is this perhaps a reflection of what they want to communicate to their audience? And I think these are tools that could potentially be useful as we go and we try to kind of interrogate the sources too, because a lot of times when you're looking at you know, disaster disease sources, you might be given something, and we get back to the issue of death tolls, that may not necessarily reflect real reality, but you know, what does it mean? Is there a deeper meaning there? And what can we find from that? Right. So I think that is actually very helpful, or it resonates with some of the projects that Merle and myself have worked on and are working on, really. And I guess that would be a good time to conclude the interview part of this episode. So thanks so much, Tyler, for coming on the podcast and sharing your project with us. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So I thought that was a great discussion on a topic that we've touched upon very broadly, which is to say disasters, but then a focus on a different type of disaster, which is famine. And I noticed, first of all, Lee, that some of the problems when it comes to disease and thinking about the impact of disease are very similar when it comes to the impact of famine, right? How do you count? And if you're not going to count and you acknowledge the problems with counting, what are other approaches to the topic? Well, I have to say, Merle, that as someone who, let's say, does not really like data, you have mentioned counting and numbers way more times than I have, definitely in this episode, right? But I think it comes back to what you said at the beginning of the episode in the framing part, right? Which is about the stories we tell, right? Which stories do we want to tell? Do we want to tell the data story, how many, how much, what happened, impact, and so on? Or do we want to tell the more personal experience story and try to understand essentially the same broad event through that perspective? And I think Tyler opted for the second approach. Yeah, I think that's a very similar outcome and methodology, even if it's a very different ultimate methodological approach that Tina Sessa mentioned when it came to disasters, right? In the late antique world that you and I live, right, we would call this something like a cultural approach to history, right? That you analyze the sources and you think about how people were thinking at the time and what that meant for their lives, which we do because the sources are archival, literally, right? They're literary. And he has 
actually more literary sources. And so you actually can call it more experiential, for lack of a better term. That's fair. I think from our perspective, this is cultural history, right? That's the way we understand it. Even if we have less sources than he does, and he has less sources than someone working on, say, early or mid 20th century European history would have. Now, another thing that came to my mind during this interview was, again, actually similar time period, right? World War One, but more about the influenza pandemic. And this goes all the way back to the interview we had with Guy Biner, who's talking about collective memory, forgetting, and so on. And Guy Biner also pointed out the importance of these broad events, right? These centennials or 75, 50 years, 150 years or whatever to create or trigger, I guess, create more interest and kind of revive memories of these different events. And that seems to have been the case here. So Tyler told us that it's essentially the centennial that brought lots of scholars to re-examine this great Lebanese famine that started in 1915. Yeah, no, that's true. And he also mentioned, right, there were two other reasons, one nationalist, one religious, I guess you could say, in why people studied it before that, right? Which has, as you said, cultural affinities to how people studied the 1918 influenza pandemic before the centennial when it kind of kicked off again, right? You have certain groups for certain reasons remembering them. But it's also interesting, right, that they're dealing with the same questions, which is, do you ask big questions or do you ask more cultural questions? And actually, what's interesting, at least from having read a lot of the 1918 influenza literature, the kind of cultural approaches that Tyler does here, with a couple exceptions, are actually not that common. Even. Yeah, I think on the memory side, I mean, you need to have some written infrastructure, so to speak, for these things to pick up, I guess, right? So if there was nothing written about it, if this were completely forgotten, it would be very difficult to remind people that this was a thing in the centennial. And there being some histories or some knowledge or some historical memory, probably enough historical memory to maybe galvanize some interest, some broader interest, both among scholars, but also among the broader public. So maybe that's the reason why this moved forward. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it reminds me actually of the famine I always think about, for lack of a better term, which is the great famine of the early 14th century in Europe, right? Which was long known about, but really the first book written about this doesn't come out until the mid-90s, right? And we could actually have the author of that book on this podcast and ask them how that came up in terms of an interesting topic, because once he did that, right, more and more people have actually written about it. But for a long time, even though people knew it as, you know, the Great Famine, literally within years of it happening, there hadn't been a lot of work done on it. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we could start expanding into famine rule, if that's the thing you're interested in as well as a disaster. But maybe to connect things to disasters, another recurring theme, I think, with some of the previous discussions we've had is the number. I mean, again, you mentioned numbers, so let's stay with, with the numbers for a moment. But are these high, inflated, exaggerated, really, numbers of deaths for disasters that Tyler said during the episode, right? I mean, these numbers that cannot really be true but are still being thrown out, as you said, like somewhere between what, 20% and 50% of the population died in the famine. I mean, 
he, he didn't seem to buy that. But I, I think those numbers still play an important role in shaping basically also the memory of these events, even if it's not at the scholarly level. Yeah, I think, you know, the numbers question always comes down to an argument for you want to, I guess, make sure everyone knows that the thing you work on or what you're trying to show is a big deal is in fact a big deal, right? If you're trying to make big, broad claims for the national history of Lebanon, of which I am quite unfamiliar with, I should say, aside from, you know, obviously broad brushstrokes, that that's an easy way to do it, right? You would say, well, it's World War One, and then this national suffering that's even more localized, right? Because in a way, as he said, World War One, in terms of the military aspect, isn't really in Lebanon as much as it is in, you know, as I joked at the beginning, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, farther south. In that case, Merle, let me ask you this, right? So who would have an interest in lowering the number of deaths, right? If we follow on what you're saying, and I think that makes sense, more or less all sides would either be neutral on this or would try to push the mortality higher. I mean, would there be anyone who's tried to push the mortality lower unless they just want to be like contrarians? I think probably no one unless you have a quote unquote scientific accuracy as your outcome and your goal, right? Which is not that interesting. And then people would just say in response to you, well, okay, but a lot of people died and then go on. Does this sound a bit like a debate we're in, Lee? Is that why you're asking? Yeah, I mean, it does. And that's what came to my mind. And I think that, I mean, even in the case of scientific accuracy, I mean, you can look at similar events such as Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, what, like five or six years ago, and there as well. I mean, I think we had like a segment on this some year or two ago in which we made the point that all these numbers are essentially political, even in the present, right? I mean, there would be different actors who would try to push these numbers up or down based on political or other interests that they have in the present. So I think it's actually very difficult to provide like precise counts, right? I mean, how do you count people? It's the COVID discussion all over again. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I hope that there's good work on this or you and I could someday write something if you really want, but I don't really want to. But could I change the topic for a second, Lee, and ask you how your packing is going? And if you have any tips for a very long move that's not permanent? It's complicated, Merle. It's complicated. So my spouse argued very strongly that she does not want to wait for the very last moment before we start packing. So I'd say we kind of started three weeks before. And at this point, we are, I'd say, kind of like packing a box or two each every day. So that seems to work so far, but ask me in a couple of weeks and we'll see if it did. So what are you doing with your furniture and like your pots and your pans and your pictures and all that stuff? Most of the furniture is going to be sold or given away. Pots, pans, books, and we're not taking most of our stuff. So we're going to store this at uh, my in-law's place, probably. I mean, they might end up not having enough space, which might be a crisis later on, but we'll worry about that later on. And I think pots and pans, it's also relatively simple. Pictures, that would be stored there as well. I'm actually going to use my office to store some of these things. Not a lot, but some stuff. So you don't have anything that like goes in your house that you're like, 
particularly attached to you're still living as if you're 22 with like cheap crappy furniture and the like you can say that we counted at some point and i think over the past decade maybe a bit more now 12 or 13 years we moved like between 10 different apartments so yeah we don't have a lot of stuff to move around yeah no i asked i mean it was our move to oklahoma that we considered more or less permanent so we got rid of all our like stuff that had been moving with us forever and now we have much nicer stuff that would be not really disposable anymore put it that way yeah but i guess you also have a larger house right so room is not that big of an issue and you have not visited my apartment here in israel Merle, but i can tell you it is a very small apartment definitely compared to american standards just got to move to oklahoma and have a nice big house and live the american dream and on that positive note of American dreams, we would like to thank our sponsors at Oklahoma State University and also the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding the podcast for quite some time now. And also our great team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Veridor Kanati. Until next time, stay cool during the ongoing global warming heat waves and maybe for Lee, try not to let the packing get you down. <laughs>